0: The, I said to somebody when they came in, oh, no, I'm the fluff, I'm the theory at the beginning. Um, but the thing to realise uh, about the theorising that I do is it's based on about 25 to 30 years of practice. And one of the issues that the UK had in terms of producing useful research in higher education about LGBT and then LGBTQ experience was Section 28 which effectively, for whatever reason, even though it did not need to do this, seemed to mean that the generation of research on young adult learning in higher education disappeared. It just didn't happen. And for me, actually it did happen. It's just that the folk who were doing it were folk on the ground, not folk in research areas. So um, although what you're about to hear is sort of a distillation of quite a lot of theory, My background is practice, not theory. So it's just to sort of give you that that context. And I suppose the other thing to say is it's a practice that, until after the repeal of Section 28, was done in local (coughs) geographies, i.e. within environments where LGBTQ students felt safe enough to talk about what was going on and to work with people about what was going on. So I think it's really important that um, it's very easy at the moment to get caught up in the idea that this is all new, but there are actually cycles and generations of people who have been doing this work, and uh, I think one of the things that really came home to me was I was sent the letter that was written by the Senate in 1976 at Glasgow University to a young philosopher philosophy lecturer who wanted to set up an LGBT group or an LGB group as it was in in fact it was just an L and G then (laughs) (laughs) and it said it's against the law you can't do it so that was in 1976 now the law in Scotland took a bit longer to change than it did in England so that's another thing you have to bear in mind but the law that came in in Scotland was a much broader piece of legislation than the law that came in in 1967 in England So, there's a huge history here, and and people are beginning to to explore that history. But what I say now is not about the sort of last year that I've been thinking about it. It's actually been drawn on a a particular background, historical background. (coughs) And I'm explaining this because my big question for you is, how do we avoid making the whole thing a negative So that what we start to do is look at literature in a way that others, the LGBT community, as in some way, uh, desperately sad. And uh, again, to give you an example of this, when I came out, it was in the 1980s, and one of my friends at university said to me, oh, that's really tragic. And I said, what? Because I was having a good time. Uh, Their perception was my life was gonna be lonely, hard, it it was not gonna be an easy life. And I remember feeling a real dissonance about that. Now, having said that, I also knew plenty of people who that is exactly what their life experience became. And um, and I started to ask this question to myself, which is, why is it for some students their identity development in whatever sense that takes, and that in itself is a hugely complicated theoretical and practical question, why is it some of them take the shame on and it alienates them. And what, it, what they then opt to do is to remove themselves from a situation that they feel they cannot achieve anything in. And in a sense, that's where you get this bullying, the big conversations that we have now about bullying, because there is a group of students for whom that is the case, that are LGBT. And then why is it for others that actually the evidence is beginning to suggest they're slightly more rounded people, they're slightly more mature epistemologically, their heuristics and their hermeneutics of life are are good things, are, and, and within an intellectual environment are particularly good things, and I'll show you why at the end. <coughs> and how can I ask that question without seeming to negate the fact that for a lot of people this is a dreadfully <coughs> painful experience that does not feel particularly comfortable <coughs> over a particular period of time? Um, and in a sense that's where my question is coming from so it's not in any way to negate how difficult it is now on top of that (coughs) because my other area is something called body theology which is the limits of what's acceptable for the body to do within Christian religion I thought well what role does sex play in all of this does sex because sex is written on the body play a role in how students learn and of course you could say "Mm, it's just another Freudian or it's just another Kleinian, no actually that's not what I'm saying I'm not attempting to pathologise it, I'm just attempting to put the body back and talk about that the body and its relationship to sexual desire and what that then does to how we experience shame and then how shame and pleasure become quite dominant um, emphases And what they then do is become pinch points for uh, quite a powerful experience. And that can be pleasurable or it can be very, very shaming. Somebody once said to me, isn't that true of all students? And I would say, yes, that is exactly true of all students. The difference is that most of them will go through all of this stuff tacitly because the assumptions that are behind their experience are established as a dominant set of assumptions and then for other students there's a thing that happens where there's almost like an epiphany point where something becomes either so uncomfortable or so pleasurable that it magnifies that point for them and that shifts, that's a qualitatively different shift Um, and I personally feel that those amplification points are at the heart of originality in some of our disciplines Um, So this is me (coughs) trying to begin to talk about the agency of being different. Uh, (coughs) I've said this before. Okay, so people say to me, right, so you look at what sexual desire does in the classroom. Isn't there a bit of a dodgy issue there? Because, as we know, the thing about the erotic is it can be negative or positive depending on the power hierarchy in which it's manifested. Um, And that means that all of my work has to be uh, pulled together using an understanding of sexual orientation and the life of the erotic and how it mobilises, at the same time as recognising that sexuality is saturated in the power dynamics of our university classrooms. So I am not a relativist. I am not talking about anything ghost. And I think that I, um, I think I'm really very clear about that my students because one of my areas is blasphemy my students were always really interested that I'm not a relativist and what the limits of of that are so this then becomes the next question how are sexual desires which are bound to lesbian gay bisexual transgender and queer identities and asexual identities and that's a group of uh, students who are always sort of wiggling their fingers at me and saying but that does, just doesn't fire for me, so what is it that we're, we're, we're doing? How do these, the presence of sexual desires or the absence of sexual desires work to influence what we opt to learn? How we opt to learn it? And then what we're prepared to make conscious? Because behind these questions is the bigger question of how do we support all students to fuel their own agency and recognize that that's what they're doing <coughs> rather than the possibility that we talk about alienation as inherently a negative thing and i think there's a lot of that there's a lot of is it is it an inherently negative thing or is there something else that we can make of it <coughs> It's nothing worse than telling an eighteen-year-old that it's all inherently negative because they're going to the change the world So. Um, So, the theory that I use is from Sarah Ahmed, who's also a tweeter. Uh, She tweets as feminist killjoy. And it's really interesting um, reading her stuff in Twitter because it's so much more grumpy than her writing, which is very fluid and positive. Um, But basically what she's talking about is the way um, we exist from a given space. And a normative space... (laughs) (coughs) <coughs> is only normative to the folk for whom the assumptions in that space are the same. Which means if our assumptions are different, and our assumptions are based on a different lived experience, we're probably moving in a different space. And I'll show you why this is uh, um, important. <coughs> now, my area of research is the role that meta-narratives play in terms of... <coughs> Um, those pinch points when you come across something that is, is, is really accentuated either as a positive or as a negative in the work that you're doing in the studies that you're doing so for me a pinch point was reading um, uh, literature on student learning and it, it being bodiless, I don't know if you've ever noticed that but like all the messy flesh and stuff, just not there and it's like actually, go into a classroom and then try and tell me that deep learning is just a mind thing or that surface learning is just a mind thing, and I'm gonna probably be saying actually, no, we need to we need to look at this more closely. So, what I would suggest is that there is a there's a ubiquitous set of intersections. And they relate to what we as academics privilege, and the students pick them up by listening to cues. But not all students hear the same cues, so the balance of what they hear um, is different and Uh, one of the things that I would say is in a sexually charged environment what you've got are indiscriminate intimacies that no one necessarily has an intention to recognise or to deliberately do but that a student might pick up as an intimate space especially if they recognise you in them and I think working with staff is quite interesting because most staff don't (coughs) realise the sort of conversations that are going on amongst the <coughs> students outside of the classroom about who's attractive, who's not attractive and the role that that plays uh, in, in some of their interests and the role that that plays for bright students, for students who are really into the discipline and how, how the individual body of the lecturer actually starts to play a role in their enthusiasm for the subject. Uh, and we're not allowed to talk about that stuff because it's all a bit messy, it's all a bit difficult, and you won't find it in the literature. And what's really interesting is the UK and the USA have slightly different ways of dealing with it. So the USA prohibits, explicitly prohibits relationships, and the UK has a fudge. I don't know if you know that the UK has a fudge, but it has no central statement about sex between students and lecturers other than the ones who are under the age of 18. And what it tends to say is things like you shouldn't be marking their work This is a fudge, okay? Um, And it says all sorts of things about what we're not prepared to do. (coughs) The research literature also privileges certain things, and if you read anything I've written, you'll realise that I've come from a discipline which really, until 20 years ago, didn't think women were important and missed out the gay stuff Mm. because it was was theologically problematic. It was heresy. So, you know, you did not want to expose 18-year-olds to um, narratives of kings who were known as sodomites. So you just took it out of the curriculum. Now you might be thinking, really? Yes, really. So, um, and then what gets translated? So I'm a medievalist. (coughs) We only started to translate the texts that were produced about sexuality in the medieval period in the last 10 years. They tended to be left in Latin because that would mean that only researchers could access them, because you didn't want undergraduates really reading this stuff. Now, that's in a field which would otherwise claim a degree of scholarly robustness, but is quite blindsided to these sorts of things. Now, if that's what's happening, what we know then is that disciplines manifest moral judgments from the society in which they emerge. Um, and that means their research literature privileges those things. And then what student clusters privilege? Because the other thing is, oh, they, they, they've got their own cues and, and the students work out cues. I, I'm in an art school now and I asked my office to be next to one of the studios so that I could watch how students work. Now, for those of you who've not been in a studio context, it looks like it's a free-for-all and that there's not much control in it. But if you actually go back and watch each day, it's not that I'm a lawyer, but I can't miss them really when the doors open because they're quite noisy. You hear that they're beginning to work as a group and that group is making judgments all the time. And it isn't just making judgments <coughs> about the quality of their work. It's doing what we do, and we know we do it because it's turning up in quite a bit of research. It's making judgments about who they are in their work and whether they're putting enough in so, we know that the students are beginning to take cues from each other about what's good, what's not good. And all of this then goes into the disciplinary learning and teaching regime of that area. And these are the big questions. So, if we've got underlying research meta narratives in all of our disciplines, what do they do in terms of creating? What is normative in logic? What is normative in aesthetics? What's normative in moral stances? And what's normative in processes of self-belief? And I cannot find this in the literature around higher education at the moment. We get very stuck on epistemological development. But actually, to understand that, you have to begin to understand the difference between logic and aesthetics. You also have to understand (coughs) the relationship between logic, aesthetics and morals. Um, and then how that all ties into shame and pleasure. So, and, that, and then you start to think right? Okay, so what is? Why would some, one student? Can a student opt to engage with material in a deep way because it brings pleasure, for example? Um, and what role would uh, their sexual identity play in that? Now, okay, so you can breathe. This is to try and explain the space thing, because I know that spatial differences are actually some of the hardest things for folk to understand. Um, This is a picture by Max Eicher. It's (coughs) sort of one of those ones that comes up a lot, um, because what it does is it shows you that you can be in the same house, but the stairs that you're on are actually separate. And they're separate enough that the people on each of these stairs is never going to meet because the perspective points in this picture. There's three of them, which means there's you could argue, that, you know, this is uh, this is a straight perspective, and that's the stairwell that they're going to be on, even though they're in the same house. And then there's a gay one, and there's a transgendered one, and basically they see the world in slightly different ways, and they experience the world in slightly different ways, and that creates a world. That is separate, um, and I'm interested in this because of um, what I consider to be a question about the distance that some students need to travel to learn their discipline. So, and I think this this one relates um, to all of the mon- all of the minority groups actually. What's the distance that they have to travel to get to the normative environment? that most of us reside in. Because for some of them, that distance is a big, big ocean which they're prepared to cross, even though it's a voyage of discovery. And for others, they won't. They'll say, actually, I don't want this. <coughs> and one of the one of the questions I put out to the sociologists in the room is why is there a decline in the number of black and minority ethnic students from the undergraduate sociology curriculum to the postdoctoral curriculum? Level in sociology, it's huge, and you know, there's a bit of me thinks, yeah, well, they see the distance; they think I'm not going to cover that distance. So there's some there's something here that we need to be engaging with, um, and if you get lost in the next bit of theory, you can just keep thinking about that picture. Uh, so what I've been working on um, is this notion that that you can you, you can begin to understand learning by by using queering as a method, and for um, sex and gender issues, you want to divide it up into um, four common states of being. So I'm trying to move away from two. Um, uh, I just think once you get into two, you, you, you're always going to be playing them off rather than saying, all right, we've got a community. And in the community, there's going to be different states of being. And for people in different bits of that state of being, how they interact in space is going to be slightly different. And once you start to do that, what you begin to realize is that although sex and gender are the accelerating points, they're like the fuel for the LGBT students, there are ways of thinking about all students that begin to say, right, okay, what are the states of being that they're coming from (coughs) that help them interact or not with their disciplines. So, um, I'm gonna stick with LGBTQ now. Uh, Performance and drag, so this is the uh, getting dressed up. Knowing that you're getting dressed up, not attempting to see yourself as anything other than in drag. Um, And How many students actually do that in our classrooms anyway? That for them going into a seminar is a deliberate performance, and how they perform outside of the seminar is actually something else altogether. And we see it in Scotland, it's always been a bit of a conversation uh, in the west coast of Scotland particularly, uh, that west coast of Scotland students until probably about 15 years ago were known not to speak in (coughs) seminars. And rather than doing the research on what they speak about outside of the seminars in the bars, everyone just assumed they weren't speaking, they weren't talking, but of course actually the conversations about the subjects were not occurring in the seminars, because the seminar was a power space in which they were not they did not feel encouraged to speak so for me what they do then in the seminar is they go in drag which is these quiet slightly demure humble students who as soon as they get out the door are uh, are really having a conversation about things performativity is a bit more difficult because um because you have to get through judith butler to get there uh, and that will take most of your life Um, But the interesting thing about performativity is that people either think it's completely non-essentialist and therefore is about the fact that we are totally socially constructed (coughs) through reiteration. So it's a reiteration of gestures that makes something natural. Or they say that underneath it, actually, there's a real essentialism, which is that there's maybe three or four archetypes and we can only pick that. Now, that's not what Butler said, but there's, there's been some conversation about that. And the thing about performativity is it's allowed for identity politics to come right into education, and that's a positive, but it has a knock-on. And the knock-on is that for LGBT students and Q students, it doesn't feel right. It is experienced as inauthentic to talk about social constructivism. Um, And once you start really working with those students, what you find is that some folk will talk about what they consider, what you could call incorporeality, which is something is bodily but not (coughs) biologically determined. (coughs) The problem that we've got is the binary between biological determinism and social constructivism. And that actually their life experience pushes back against that. And for me that's a huge question, Um, uh, Cedric Karkovsky asked it and stated it, you know, we have got to be so careful with this binary, she's very clear about it, and yet can I just say educational literature is some of the worst when it comes to operating in that binary, Um, and we really need to start challenging that. And then the other group that has really started to say, yeah, Butler's fine, but it's not the whole story, is the transsexual community and the intersex communities, where folk are actually saying, no, I need to look like I feel, because actually my physical manifestation, the material of my body, needs to be aligned with who I think I am. Whereas this group are quite interesting because they'll say no I am what I look and I feel which is a bit different (coughs) it's a queer it's a queer discourse and you need to get used to it because that's my lived experience and then on top of that how because I'm interested in sexuality how do the sexually charged desires that are associated with identities in which sexual difference is the thing that they are identified for play a role in how groups from each of these might learn. Because at the moment, we're not not nuancing our questions about learning at all. And in fact, if we've got caught up in (coughs) deep and surface learning, actually the question is one that exists before that. You know, why do some people who are pulled by performance become deep learners and some not? Why do some folk for whom material literalism is the only path become deep learners and some not, and is there, is there a difference? So for me, rather than separating sex and gender, I tend to talk about different states of being. And sometimes that dislocates sex and gender, sometimes that locates them absolutely together in a way that cannot be separated, sometimes it places gender as the dominant um, factor and sex as a secondary one, sometimes it's the other way around. So. These are all the sorts of questions I ask. And then, um, just to challenge people, people's perceptions of it all being awfully negative, I started to look at ideas of agency. And what I've basically been doing is taking what's coming out of literature to come up with headlines that are about points of agency in identity development and what they might mean in terms of how students learn. Um, and that's that's the work that I'm working on at the moment. So, the first thing is transgression. Transgression is actually a form of agency. But the way that normative situations mm. will view it as it is something that needs to be um, softened or acclimatised or or uh, smoothed over, harmonized. Um, And you see this a lot, if you read any of the literature that came out of America in the 90s about doing therapy with young gay people, it's all about actually making them metaphorically straight so that their sexuality is very much accepted but how they're gonna operate in relationship is a very, very straight picture. And that's why, um, if you're wondering what the debates around same-sex marriage are all about, that's a bit of it. There's a bit of concern that same-sex marriage conversations are actually about straightening a gay thing, or or straightening what I would straightening a bent line, basically. And that's where the concerns come. And that's quite hard for some people to realise because what you're basically saying is your norm is not my norm, and I am not. You know, if you try and put me in that box, then you alienate me. Um, so if I see defiance and I've got one narrative which is from a book on, on counselling gay students and it said you know this, this student came in really angry, angry all the time and I thought oh, that sounds really cool came in, got piercings, nose piercing and I thought oh really interesting student and the whole sort of thrust of this book was to attempt to help the student out of their anger so they would sort of look more normal Now, um, if any of you have read Goldman's Emotional Intelligence, you need to read the back of that book to understand just how straight that book is. I don't know, have have any of you read it? Okay, well, you go and have a look at what he's got to say about marriage. And what you realise is he's working in a really, really quite structured heteronormative (coughs) situation. So for him, a defiant student would be um, someone who is so angry they need to be sort of eased up. Uh, Subversion and radical questioning, well, if we don't foster this in all of our students, then I'm not sure what most of us are doing. So if what we're saying is that the subversive radical questioning that comes out of the LGBT community is a negative, implicitly, not explicitly, because we probably wouldn't, are we actually saying that there are limits to the sorts of originality in our disciplines and that gatekeeping them is our our job, regardless of the possibility that we might lose something really important. And then the surveillance, the surveillance culture. Now, we've got a metaphor for that developing on all of our campuses that are using learning analytics at the moment. Um, I'm in a small institution which can't afford the subscriptions for learning analytics. But I've come from one where there was a huge amount of investment Mm. in learning analytics. And for me, they're almost like heteronormativity writ large because what they do is they they assess student patterns of movement on campus and then they tie that in to how students are doing in the classroom and then (coughs) if the students are not accessing the library regularly or the sports hall regularly or going to lectures regularly and there's something showing up in their grades, a a little bing comes up for the advisor of studies and the advisor of studies can get that person to come in and they can have a talk. With them about that. And the interesting thing about that is that the interventions enable um, participation, continued participation rather than withdrawal. But what actually are we doing underneath that? And I have, you know, so for me, that's, I think that um, there will be a countercultural development within the student body, not necessarily from the LGBT community, but from the students that starts to say, actually, we're not sure about this. Not sure that that's what we want. Other forms of agency that you see in the literature. um, Reclamation. For those of you who've been to see the film Pride, this has got quite a long history, as you probably gather if you have seen that film. But in the literature, the biggest reclamation has been shame as a positive drive and force rather than as a negative drive and force. Again, it's nuanced, because the literature suggests that gay men have a qualitatively higher experience of shame than lesbians. I don't know how they've done this, actually. i would like to see the research. Um, uh, but that then changes the relationship in space that people <coughs> have. Um, Truths generation, I quite like this one. This is where you sort of come to a middle ground and hope that you can stop violence coming out. And uh, and I think most people would go for truth generation. Uh, I had a PhD student who was looking at older LGBT student experience and I know there's quite a lot about young student experience here but the older student experience must not be ignored because actually just because they're not at the first flush of their identity development doesn't mean that some of them use the opportunity of going to university to turn their lives upside down Um, and Um, what we found in the interviews that Chris was doing that there was a notion of self-enforced hibernation that when folk were reflecting back on their younger lives their younger selves they put things into hibernation and waited until they felt it was safe now if you want to see this writ large you should talk to LGBT student doctors because they do that quite a lot much more than you would possibly think and their crisis point, for example, happens when they go into a sex education or a sex and gynaecology lecture lecture where the lecturer comes out with something about HIV that would not be accepted in practically any other context other than possibly back room of some of the religious conversations. And that can be a real crisis point for them. And it's not latency because they made a decision somewhere to put them to set their sexuality into hibernation. So and that's why I'm saying I'm not a Freudian I'm not just talking about latency and the other one is compartmentalization. and we really saw this in it with our more mature students how they had managed to put parts of their life into different categories and operate in slightly different ways and of course the internet allows that even more because you can have an anom- anom- anonymous life in a virtual environment that fulfills quite a lot of your desires Um, this has got there's a lot here for us to learn about engagement and alienation with all of our students because I think they, you know, everybody probably put something into hibernation and then um, playfulness, performance and parody uh, which again, you know joyful, really needs to be uh, given more space to work out how does that work What is it about parody that actually changes the way students engage with their disciplinary material or the people who are teaching them? And then the ones that I'm really beginning to work with now because I think they're at the base of um, originality in the disciplines. So they are the thing that our disciplines need to carry on growing. And that's why I say to students, you know, It's it's not all bad, it's not all going to be tough. Actually some of this is going to be about the fact that you are walking a path to change the space and that isn't an easy path um, to do. And the first one are these temporary and not so temporary geographies. So people create clusters, they create virtual and real spaces in which they can meet and work together to do things. And in a sense, the conversations that are going on around same-sex marriage interest me because they're almost the, um, they're the explicit light being shone on those clusters. And you can actually talk to students about how those things work. And there's uh, uh, a colleague in Australia that's working on single-parent spaces and how actually, if you look at queer theory, you can begin to understand how single parents have to carve out a geography for themselves within the university. Now, in the carving out of that space, do they actually begin to change the boundaries of the discipline, is my question. Heresy, uh, that's what I used to be associated with in theology and religious studies, because I was the one who came in to teach heresy. Um, And the thing about heresy is that it's the way that we create and invest in different types of understanding. That undermines a heteronormative understanding or any normative uh, dominant narrative. And discursive attribution. And this is this one. This is this is really difficult. And I I actually think as educators we've all got to start getting to grips with this because we've become so we've become so reliant on social constructivism. And actually in that. We have recreated the binary between what cognitive neuroscientists are doing and what we're trying to do. And uh, there are good, sound political reasons for that, but they will probably stop the movements in the disciplines that we need to see because we'll be so busy fighting from our own villages that we won't realise that someone else has cut right across um, and, and come up with something else. And this discursive attribution is fascinating Uh, I read a piece quite recently that was on um, female-to-male transsexuals. And what they were talking about is the decision not to have surgery, why they're not having surgery, and how their imaginary world operates to take the place of the surgery, and that they don't need the surgery because of that. And I think there's something really, really quite (coughs) profound in that that might help us with this trying to come to terms with it's not essential, it's not an either or essentialism thing, it's something a bit more profound so these are points of agency for me, the trouble is that they, they emerge because fe- people experience dissonance disruption and shame so they are not value neutral experiences they, they are a mixture of painful and happy experiences but we need to find a way of enabling students to recognise that these, are, these can be positive forces. They don't just need to be the things that make the students opt to withdraw, either into themselves or to actually physically relocate themselves outside of the academy. <coughs> so um, this is my thing. I like steampunk. Um, I like steampunk because what it does is it takes a load of junk, puts it together and makes it into an art form. Um, and it gives it a new sense of, uh, of a structure. Um, and I'm going to read this bit because it's a bit more theoretical. Um, and it's about hermeneutics. It's about personal hermeneutics. So I apologise for reading it because I, I'm not sure I can, I can just say it easily. So one of the key generators of dissonance within meta-narrative heteronormative heteronormativity for for our LGBTQ students, is that their thoughts, ideas and physical encounters are subordinated to models which seem ever more abstracted from their lived experiences. So there's an accumulation of abstraction over time. It's not just that they come in thinking it's irrelevant. They actually start to increasingly hit against something being abstracted. These are alien conceptual bases and that means they require a further distance to be travelled in an explicit manner rather than the tacit travelling that a lot of non-LGBT students might do in the same context. So there's an energy question here, do they have to use more energy to make things fit for example? Or is more energy generated because they are hitting those dissonances? The impact of this on our personal hermeneutic approaches, so how we read and interpret what we hear, see and sense, is for some overwhelmingly negative, and it just amplifies the dissonances. And for others, it's a pivotable is a pivotal point where their state of being starts to counter the dominant model. And in that What that actually does is they begin to say, right, that's irrelevant to me at the moment. How can I make it less abstract? How can I make meaning out of this? And from my background, that act of attempting to make meaning in a different way is the location of originality in the discipline. So this is a huge agency issue that we have. And although I'm not one for big memes like, you know... uh, the world's gonna be a better place with diversity because actually it's much more complicated than that actually I would say it's time for us to really begin to say what what are the agentic aspects of feeling and being different in an environment that is straight and how can we encourage students to see themselves that way rather than as it all being this is a bit tough so there you go. So that's the theoretical fluff. Uh, the are starting um, now. I think we've got a couple of couple of minutes. Just yeah, yeah, easy. Yeah, we're, we can always cut into lunch time. Okay. So, like, can I just, just start by saying?